You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open the Word to our Scripture reading this morning. Malachi chapter 1. An oracle, the Word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty." But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden! And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat, who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now we turn to the text for the sermon this morning, Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, 
So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Beloved congregation of Christ, imagine a pot of water on the stove. Perhaps with this pot of water you're preparing to cook some sort of rice or pasta, maybe macaroni, for many of you, maybe potatoes. You've, you've turned on the stove and, and now you wait. The element heats up and eventually little bubbles start to form in the water in the pot. And before long, those bubbles are making their way to the surface. And not long afterwards, the pot of water is at a full boil. And if you don't watch it carefully, it'll boil over. Well, the book of Mark is like that pot of water on a stove. At the beginning of the book, things were cool. But as the book progresses, things get hotter. In the last few passages we've looked at there, there's been conflict and animosity between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, the passage that we're looking at today is the fifth in a series that features this sort of conflict. The element is hot, and the pot is just about to boil. And in our passage for this morning, the heat is produced by ongoing controversy about the Sabbath. Last week we saw how Christ gave the correct understanding or interpretation of the Sabbath. He showed that it is a gift of God to man. A gift so that man can rest and worship. And because it is a gift to man, it also belongs to Christ, the Son of Man and is properly called the Lord's Day. Because He is true man, Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's His day. And because we are in Him by faith, it's also our day. Sunday, the Christian Sabbath, is the day that God has given to us. The day that we are free to rest and worship. Mark 3 begins by telling us that the Lord Jesus again came into the synagogue. Could have been the same Sabbath day. Could have been in Capernaum or Galilee. On both counts, we're not told. And really, it doesn't matter either. What matters is who was there. There was a man there who had a shriveled hand. What is a shriveled hand? Well, most likely that refers to some form of, uh, some sort of deformation or paralysis, which left the man unable to use his hand. How it became like that, there again, we're not told. In verse 2, we find that some of them 
were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Right away we notice them. Verse 2 goes on to say, so they watched him closely. There again, notice the word they. Mark doesn't identify who his pronouns are referring to here. We're left to assume who them and they are. And you know that's easy enough to do because of the context. In the verses right before our passage, it was the Pharisees against Jesus. At the end of this passage, in verse 6, again we read about the Pharisees. So put two and two together, and once again, we have the Pharisees shadowing Christ. They're the ones watching His every move and His every word. It's them versus Him. They're watching to see if He would heal this particular man on the Sabbath. Now, according to the Pharisees, healing was allowed on the Sabbath, but only if it was necessary to save someone's life. Obviously, this man's life was not in danger. So to heal him would have been a violation of their understanding of what God's law required. After all, they would have thought to themselves, Jesus could have waited till Monday to do this, or Sunday rather. There was no pressing need for him to heal this man right now in the synagogue, on the Sabbath day? The Lord Jesus knows that they're watching. He speaks directly to the man and He tells him to to come forward. And the image here, the picture you're supposed to get in your mind is of Jesus and the man standing in the middle of the synagogue with everyone else gathered round. And at that particular moment, it appears that he's just going to go ahead and heal him. But he surprises us by not doing that. It's not right away. Instead, he speaks to the Pharisees, to them. He takes a page out of the Pharisees' playbook and he asks them a question. You'll remember that in chapter 2, when the Pharisees asked why Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they weren't asking a genuine question. The same happened when they asked about why His disciples weren't fasting, and also why the disciples were plucking grain and doing what was considered unlawful on the Sabbath. Those weren't real questions. Last week, we compared those questions to those asked in the the House of Commons during question period. They're questions with a point. Now, Jesus does the exact same thing here. It's not a real question He asks. It's a rhetorical question. He asks them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? When the Pharisees asked their so-called questions, Christ had answers readily at hand. His answers were based on God's Word and on a correct interpretation of God's Word. However, here, the Pharisees run stuck. Mark says, but they remained silent. Silent. 
What could they say? Because Jesus' question put them on the horns of a dilemma. They couldn't say, on the one hand, that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath, because if they did that, that would validate Jesus healing this man in front of them. But on the other hand, they couldn't say that it was lawful to do evil on the Sabbath because it was not lawful to do evil on any day, let alone on the Sabbath. And so they were stuck. And that question with a point had struck its mark. Now in what follows, we get a rare glimpse into the emotions of our Lord Jesus. He was and He is a human being, like we are. That means that he had, and still has, emotions like us. And in verse 5, we see him getting angry. What does that tell us? Well, for one thing, it tells us that anger in itself is not sinful. Ephesians 4.24 tells us, be angry, but do not sin. There is a sinful anger, and there is also a righteous anger. Anger is righteous when it grows out of love for one's neighbor. For instance, when we we see a child being abused, and we get angry because of the pain being caused and the injustice, that's righteous anger. And it's not sinful. In fact, one could say that it would be sinful not to be angry about something like that. And that's the sort of anger, righteous anger that the Lord Jesus was feeling at this particular moment. He was a sinless man. He was angry. He was angry because the Pharisees had added all kinds of burdens to God's law which ended up not helping people, but hurting people. He was not only angry, he was also deeply distressed. He was bothered by their stubborn hearts. Literally, it says that he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. That expression, hardness of heart, is one that we find repeatedly throughout the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. And as our Bible translation rightly puts it, it refers to a sort of stubbornness. Hard-nosed stubbornness. But there's more to it. Throughout the Scriptures, when, when people's hearts are hardened, it is often God who is said to do the hardening. In His judgment, He gives them over completely to their sins and their willfulness. And perhaps the best illustration of this is found in the Bible with Pharaoh in the opening chapters of Exodus. Initially, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But eventually, we read that God hardened his heart. And God did that for His own redemptive purposes. To magnify His glory in delivering the people from Egypt. As Paul says with respect to this in Romans 9.18, Therefore God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. 
It's the same here. The opposition of the Pharisees wasn't a surprise to God. In God's plan, this is the way things fell into place. God hardened their hearts so that they would not listen, so that they could not answer Jesus' question. God closed their ears so that they would not hear. And just as with Pharaoh, God did it for His own redemptive purposes to magnify His own glory in delivering us from slavery to sin and death eternal. If we can paraphrase Paul in Romans 9, where he in turn is quoting Moses in Exodus 9, God raised up the Pharisees for this very purpose, that He might display His power in them and that His name would be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, just like the devil is God's devil, the Pharisees are God's Pharisees. Looking all around Him with His mingled anger and grief, Jesus finally turns His attention to the man with the withered hand. It's the moment everyone's been waiting for. He says to him, stretch out your hand. And he does. And it's healed. It's made exactly like the other one. And when the Lord does this, He answers His own question. The lawful thing to do on the Sabbath is good. To save life. To restore life. In Deuteronomy 5, which we we read together earlier, the fourth commandment is connected with the exodus from Egypt. When God showed mercy and compassion to His people, when He did good for them. And so it totally fits with the character of this day to show compassion and to show mercy to those who are hurting. The Lord of the Sabbath does good on the Sabbath. And here again, we see His perfect obedience to God and His law. The Lord Jesus is the perfect law keeper. And what He does here was not only good for that man with the withered hand, it's also good for us. Why is that? Well, because His perfect obedience and doing the right thing and doing good, that's given to us. It's another gift from God. The righteousness He displayed through His whole life, it's yours. You see, it was not only His death that made you right with God, it was also His perfect life. His perfect life is also part of the Gospel for us. The good news. We have a Savior who kept the law entirely and His righteousness is imputed to us. Now we're sinners and we know it. But because of Christ and all that He did, we're good with God. Not only that, but He continues to do good for us. And since this text deals with the Sabbath, let's briefly consider how He does good for us on Sundays, on the Lord's Day. And what about today in particular? 
Today, because of His good teaching, we are free to rest and worship. As we come to worship, we hear His good news. We're encouraged to know that we have a Savior who has freed us from all the wrath of God that we rightfully deserve. We hear that Gospel preached with our ears. But today, on this special Sunday, there's more. Because today we can also see and smell and feel and taste the Gospel. Here again, we're going to see how Christ is doing good for us. How He is healing, restoring, and encouraging us. Us who are weak and frail. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments, we can see the bread and the wine. All of us can do that. And that includes the the children and also others who may not be able to partake. And for you children, when your mom and dad take the bread and the wine, look at it. You see it, don't you? It's real. It's not fake bread. It's not fake wine. It's real. And what Christ did for you is just as real as what you see in front of your eyes. And perhaps as that tray of wine goes past you, perhaps you'll be able to smell it as well. Maybe you can even smell the bread. There too. It's real. It's not a mirage. Christ's work for you, for all of us, is just as real as what you smell in your nose when the elements of the Lord's Supper are being passed around. And then there are the communicant members. Only the communicant members will feel and taste the bread and the wine, you will really taste and see that the Lord is good. That His promises and His salvation are real. And so you see, Jesus Christ is doing good for us today. Just as He does every day. But today, in a deeper and much more significant way. And how do we respond to that? Well, last week we were reminded that this day is a gift. A gift to be received with gratitude. When someone gives you a gift, you don't push it away and treat it with contempt. Especially when that gift comes from someone you love, someone who loves you. You take that gift graciously and with thanksgiving. In the nature of the case, we see the Sabbath as a day in which Christ does us good. But also then a day in which we who are in Christ, we who are united to Christ by faith, in turn, do good for others. Think of how the Catechism captures that when it includes the giving of Christian offerings for the poor as something required by the fourth commandment. But you know, we could go far beyond that. And I hope that we will. And how you do that, I'll leave that up to you.
That's something you can discuss with your, your family and friends over lunch. The principle is plain. The Sabbath is a day in which we're free to rest and worship, but also a time, a day in which the time we would otherwise spend on our, our daily labor, we can use that time in doing good for our neighbor. Christ is the great restorer. He restored the Sabbath and its meaning, and He restored the man's hand to the way it was created to be. It's His day. And He reorients it here in our text. However, those who had set this day in the wrong direction, they didn't receive this reorientation very well. In fact, Verse 6 tells us that the Pharisees right away went out and joined forces with the Herodians to try and figure out a way to destroy Him. Here we have Jesus doing good on the Sabbath. Jesus saving and restoring life. But them? They are plotting to destroy a man. To kill him. To get him out of the way. With their actions, they show that they believe that it is lawful to kill, or at least plan to kill on the Sabbath. How far they've drifted from God. How their hearts are hardened. And we see that most powerfully in the alliance that they make with the Herodians. That's not a detail that we should quickly overlook. The Herodians were influential people who were friendly with the Herodian dynasty, the Herodian kings. The Herodian family, the Herods, they're important here because of their background and lineage. The family of Herod were descended from Esau. And throughout the Old Testament, there was constant friction and enmity between the descendants of Jacob and those of Esau, the Edomites. For instance, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, the Edomites took part and they cheered it on. Tear it down! Tear it down! They cried. All that forms the background to what we read in Malachi chapter 1. God's choice was Jacob. But he rejected, he even hated, strong language, he hated Esau. They are a people always under the wrath of Yahweh. There you can see the divine opposition set up between these two peoples. And that opposition, it didn't end with the Old Testament. It didn't end with the book of Malachi. Because when we go into the book of Matthew, we find Herod the Great, a descendant of Esau, seeking to kill the baby Lord Jesus. The Pharisees knew their Bible, and they knew they would have known that the Edomites were on the other side of the fence, so to speak. But now they join them. God's own people, His own covenant people, join forces with the enemy to destroy the Messiah. That too, it's part of the hardening process and the growing opposition to Christ, which will culminate in His trial and in His death. 
And so at the end of our passage here, the pot is boiling. It's a matter of time now before the pot boils over. Someone gets burned. But keep in mind what it says in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. God was not off doing other things while the pot started boiling. He was there. And He was in control. Peter said in Acts 2.23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The sovereign God determined the plot of the drama of our redemption. He continues to be the sovereign God today. Your sovereign God who loves you and who is guiding the drama to its final act. Today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look forward to that final act. We eagerly anticipate the day of judgment, day of wonders. Let us pray. O sovereign God of power and love, we see Your hand in our text guiding the drama of our redemption. We also know that Your hand is in our lives and in the stories of our lives continuing to guide the drama of our redemption. We praise You for Your sovereign power and Your redeeming love. We thank You for a Savior who does good for us each day, and especially on this day. We're grateful for His perfect obedience for us, His heartfelt emotions, His compassion. This is the Savior we want to cling to in life and in death. Help us, O God, to fix our eyes on Him today and always. O King Eternal, lead us on to the end of the age. Please hear us as we pray in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.